Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back at how various areas of the law have changed and what it means for those who practice in those areas. For today's show, we're focusing on the U.S. Supreme Court with Carter Phillips and Michael Dreeben. Both have been in practice for more than 30 years. Carter has argued 88 U.S. Supreme Court cases, and Michael has argued 105. Both are now partners at large law firms. Carter is at Sidley, and Michael is at O'Melveny. Gentlemen, welcome to the show, and happy to the almost start of the October term. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Yes. So uh, the first thing I want to ask you about is um, the changes in oral arguments with the Supreme Court. And I have heard that that started around the time when Justice Scalia was appointed in 1986, because he asked quite a few more questions than the justices had before he was on the court. Do either of you have thoughts on that? Is that your recollection as well? Since I actually am old enough to have argued in the Burger Court, I, I'm probably in a better position to respond to that. I had the <laughs> uh, privilege of arguing nine cases before that court, before uh, Justice Scalia went on, the, went on the bench. And I think it was, I've never actually sat down and counted all of the questions. I've never looked at the transcript of the nine oral arguments, but if you were to ask me based on my recollection, I would guess that I, I probably received somewhere between 10 and 15 questions throughout the course of a 30 minute oral argument. And one of the instructional elements of preparing for oral argument that the, that the deputies would offer was to figure out how to go back and forth between making an affirmative presentation, responding to questions, and then going back into a, an affirmative presentation and then responding to questions. So it was, it was I think, what by comparison to the way oral argument has been in the last few years, it was a pretty genteel exchange between the bench and the bar. And then Justice Scalia went on the bench in 1986. And I'm not 100% sure that this was the first case that was argued, but I, I do vividly remember that Michael Dreven's former colleague, who was also my former colleague, Ed Needler, had one of the very, very first oral arguments uh, when Justice Scalia went on the bench. And in the first 30 seconds of the oral argument, Justice Scalia asked him more questions than I think I typically got asked in a, in a 30 minute oral argument. Uh, and not surprisingly, even after others interjected and asked questions, Justice Scalia asked more questions. And uh, it just changed completely uh, the tempo of oral argument at the court. It was just the one, just the one adjustment. Do you recall attorneys' reactions who watched that that first oral arguments with the questions? Were you guys like, "Oh my heck!" Or I mean, what did you? Because if you weren't anticipating all those questions, I could see you'd think, "Wow!" But on the other hand, you could say, "Well, you should be anticipating all those questions because you need to anticipate every possible thing that might come up during oral arguments." So I argued one of the cases the first the first month that uh, Scalia was on the bench and uh, proceeded to lose it nine to nothing. And it came out, I think, in the shortest period of time possible between the time I argued it and the time an opinion could come out. 
But I have to say, I did get a lot of questions, but it wasn't really, even though Scalia wrote the opinion, I, I, I can't really say he was the instigator of a lot of the questions. Justice White gave me a very hard time, as did most of the other justices, because it was a, uh, a difficult case. I, I think all, everybody was surprised initially that, that suddenly you could anticipate that there were going to be a lot more questions. I think some people knew Justice Scalia before he went on the bench, and so I suspect uh, we're not as surprised. Um, my guess is Ed Needler, who had worked at the Office of Legal Counsel under Justice Scalia, probably was a little more prepared for it than maybe the average uh, advocate. You know, but the truth is, in those days, there wasn't a specialized Supreme Court bar. And so uh, almost any time somebody showed up was the first time they were going to be arguing. And therefore, it was not, I think, I think almost any set of questions um, were somewhat surprising uh, to anybody. So I'm not sure that the volume had quite the impact it would have had had there been a, a more specialized bar in existence at the time. As you were getting more questions than perhaps was normal at the time, how did you switch gears or just a- address that? How, what was your strategy to deal with that when you were in front of the court? Well, actually, for me, it, was, it wasn't that difficult. I figured out I, pretty early on that I'm not a great speech giver. I do better if I'm answering questions. So it's a format that personally I, I prefer. One of the frustrations, I think, of, of, the, of the earlier court was not knowing precisely what the justices were thinking about. And so we're, you know, so I would often finish the oral argument and wonder if I had actually hit the points that they were particularly disturbed by. And then, and, and then with Justice Scalia, it didn't leave much doubt as to what issues he was disturbed by. And so at least you had a, a nice peek into his thinking. And the truth is, um, from th- that point on, from 1986 on, generally speaking, the justice, all of the justices, you can either say picked up their game some, or just simply get became much more active as questioners. And and over time, it has at least been pretty clear to me that the that the focus of the questioning is much more reflective of exactly what the justices are thinking about the case. And so, at least from my perspective, it's more satisfying because I do at least have some opportunity to respond if uh, one or more of the justices has misgivings about a position I'm taking. Do you think with uh, the justices asking more questions, it became easier to predict if you were going to win or lose? I think for the most part, that's true. Uh, It's interesting with the last year or so with the modified oral argument format using the telephonic, it's a little trickier to try to figure out what's going on because everybody asks questions and you can't tell to what extent they really reflect views or not. But up and up until that point in time, I, I, th- I thought you could pretty well predict how the court was going to come out at least about 85% of the time. Um, they, 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 they typically don't ask questions for the sake of just asking questions. They typically ask questions because they reflect something that they're seriously thinking about the case and giving you an opportunity to explain why they shouldn't think about the case in that particular way. I am guessing that when you are prepping with your team for oral arguments, it's probably a group effort to anticipate what questions will be asked. 
Um, is that accurate? And how, if so, how does that work? Michael, can you weigh in on that? Yes, and thanks, Stephanie. The process of uh, preparation is largely about anticipating questions and trying to formulate answers to them. I think of oral argument as largely the justices having a conversation with themselves through counsel. And as an advocate, one has to believe that it matters what you say. Uh, as a realist observing the court, the justices, I think, are often using their questions as ways to lobby or influence um, another justice or other wings of the court or to expose weaknesses that will help their side. I think justices typically arrive at the bench with a pretty good sense of how they're going to vote. And it can change, but that is very rare. A little bit more frequent is uh, maybe an alteration in the rationale that they perceive will attract five votes or a uh, theory that they had that doesn't work out in practice as well. So as an advocate, I did try to develop a list of affirmative points that I wanted to make that might influence uh, the court. Responses to the difficulties in the case, every case has them. Some are more uh, problematic than others. Some are true black holes that if you fall into, you'll never get out. And the primary mechanism for testing all of those things are moot courts where uh, your colleagues uh, take on the persona of justices, not imitating any particular justice necessarily, although Justice Scalia was a pretty popular figure to mimic. I was wondering if there might have been any kind of improv going on when, in some of these intense question uh, anticipation uh, exercises. <laughs> I think so. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> sometimes it was too tempting, and would you share some any justices, with us? Some justices are a little bit more um, imitatable and distinctive in their questioning style than others, but no names will be shared on this. Okay, podcast. and we we can't get an invitation from you. Definitely not on the air. Okay. <laughs> Actually, Stephanie, I'll tell you. I, I'll share a story with you. I'm not going to name names of anybody, but I I do have a. a a recollection of being asked once at an oral argument that was held at Howard University's law school to be the Scalia-like character who was supposed to be asking the most hostile questions. And so I accepted that responsibility or that role. And so I started off by asking some fairly aggressive questions in much the same way that um, Justice Scalia might have, uh, and actually I think did ultimately at the oral argument itself. And, and unfortunately, the response was that the audience started to boo me. <laughs> so, <it's> not, <laughs> I figured that Justice Scalia never had to face that particular nuance problem. <laughs> In both of your careers, do you feel like you saw over the years justices change? And if so, can you tell me a bit about that? Well, I mean, they do change, at least in terms of, I'll start with the oral argument. So part of this is just simply a function of age, right? I mean, Justice Stevens at his prime, I, I thought was probably the best hypothetical questioner on the court. Uh, Michael may have a, a different 
viewer, different preference in that score. But I always thought he was an incredible participant on you know on the bench. But you know, as he as he aged, you know, the number of questions dropped off pretty dramatically over time. So I, I mean, I think all of the justices to some extent are a little less active. It's part of the reason why the the overall number of questions has increased pretty dramatically over time is because each you know justice steve justice scalia started it but the truth is if you combine the fact that when justice scalia started asking questions that caused justices brennan and stevens and even justice marshall on occasion even justice blackman to ask more questions and then if you look at who replaced those justices on the court uh, almost in every instance, the replacing justice was a more active questioner than the justice whom he or she replaced. And, and the reason I, that came to mind was I was thinking Justice Stevens at his height would be hard to find somebody more active than he was. But by the time he retired and was replaced by Justice Kagan, she was right there with him at the height of his of of his activity level. So the overall impact has been to go from what I described earlier, sort of 10, 15 kinds of questions, 10 or 15 questions and a 30 minute oral argument to 50, 60, sometimes as many as 70 questions uh, in a, a 30 minute oral argument, which obviously doesn't give you a whole lot of time to answer those questions and certainly didn't give you a lot of time to think about two or three ways of answering any particular question. Michael, what do you think? Have you seen changes? injustices when you've been in arguing Supreme Court cases over the years? The court, I think, uh, tends to react to other members of the court and their personalities and predilections. And uh, as I said, I think oral argument is a conversation among the justices themselves. So in the early days when I was there, um, Justice O'Connor held a privileged position as the so-called swing justice. I'm not sure that that any description of swinging or not swinging is really fair to a particular justice, but she was the justice whose vote was most in play in a case where you might see a 5-4 split and uh, the justices were seeking to influence uh, the outcome. And same for the advocates. Uh, later on, that role fell to Justice Kennedy when Justice O'Connor left the court. And I think oral arguments tended to revolve a little bit more around those justices and the kinds of things that would appeal to those justices. Now, in the Solicitor General's office, I never sat back and said, I'm going to try to craft an argument that's solely designed to appeal to uh, this justice or that justice, you can't do that when you have the institutional responsibility to represent the United States and its agencies. Uh, but you would still be quite aware of where the pressure points in the case were and how to appeal to different justices. So the changes, I think, largely flowed from, uh, from the dynamic on the court, the voting pattern itself, and some of the changes in style as justices uh, learned more about who they were and where they tended to vote and felt either more or less frustrated or more or less uh, in control. 
Okay. Are there some justices that when they were confirmed to the court, you expected them to be one way and in fact, they were not that way or perhaps they've changed during the time they've been on the court? I think Justice Souter was an outstanding (laughs) example of that. He was confirmed as a Republican nominee with uh, expectations that he would fall in line with uh, the views that were shared by the more conservative justices. And he emerged ultimately as one of the most progressive justices on the court. If you want to treat the court as having liberal wings and conservative wings, he landed very firmly on the uh, the liberal side, except on Fourth Amendment issues, where he tended still to retain some of his New Hampshire um, uh, reasonableness and uh, was was more of a vote for law enforcement in that area. But that was a fairly dramatic shift. And I think that it started in one direction and it continued throughout his entire time on the court. Um, other justices were pretty consistent throughout their entire tenure. Justice Thomas, still on the court, has been a very devoted uh, conservative and originalist thinker. He's not a clone of any other justice, but his general jurisprudential philosophy does not seem to me to have changed um, very much. But it's the kind of, I think, institution where if people are, you know, engaged in a dialogue with the other justices, they do learn and they feel more comfortable and that may make them either more open-minded or perhaps less open-minded over time. Carter, what about you? Well, I I thought that uh, Justice Blackman did change over time, at least from the time when I was clerking to the period of time when it came closer to his retirement from the court. He was a he was a relatively consistent vote with my old boss and Justice Rehnquist on a on a fair number of cases in the seventy eight term. So, uh, it, and then I, I think it would be fair to say that he and and at that point Chief Justice Rehnquist would have differed pretty dramatically by the by the end of his time on the bench. So I he he clearly shifted to a more progressive approach. Um, than where I think he started off at the court. I think Justice Stevens is kind of interesting. I, I know Justice Stevens always said he stayed exactly where he was from the day he got on the bench and that it was the court that, in fact, moved um, to the right. And uh, that may be true, but um, I think most people, I suspect most scholars would say, uh, he, he, you know, there, there's something to the idea that the court moved in that direction, but he, he may have rebounded some or responded some by moving slightly more to the left or at least embracing those viewpoints more aggressively than, I, than, I, than he might have, uh, certainly when he went on the bench in the first place in 1975. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about the growth of, a, of the private U.S. Supreme Court bar. We'll be right back. Imagine if 62% of your clients paid on the same day they were billed. That's what it's like to be with LawPay. LawPay makes it easy to securely accept credit, debit, and e-check payments from anywhere. Because LawPay was developed specifically for the legal industry, your earned and unearned fees are properly separated and your IOLTA account is protected against third-party debiting. Visit lawpay.com ABA to get started. 
And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I get to talk about changes in the U.S. Supreme Court with Carter Phillips and Michael Dreben. I wanted to ask both of you about uh, page limits and word limits on Supreme Court briefs. I, I have the impression that, at least with the page limits, it's led to more amicus briefs, which could mean people might have more opportunities to do Supreme Court work. Is, is that accurate? Well, I, yeah, I, we should give a little more of the history to it, I suppose. When I clerked, which was the 78 term, which was one year before the court adopted the page limits that it did, uh, I have a very vivid memory of, uh, particularly in the Columbus and Dayton school busing cases, that the briefs for the parties were four and 500 pages long. And there was one antitrust case where the the defendant's brief it was that was a petitioner i'm sure it was at least five to 500 might have been 600 pages long and um I, I can just tell you from the perspective of the law clerk who was working you know where in a, on a court where they were deciding about 150 or so cases and there were no limits on the length of the briefs the fact that the united states government had a self-imposed restriction that it would only file 50 page briefs when it was a party and 30 page briefs when it was an amicus made made that gray brief unbelievably inviting from the perspective of an overworked law clerk um any event i survived that <laughs> that experience and when i went to the solicitor general's office in 1981 the rule had changed and they went to went to 50 page briefs and um 50 pages for the merits for the party and 30 pages the amici and i will say it was a lot easier world to to live in um and in part see it's better from the lawyer's perspective not only from the law clerks but also from the lawyer's perspective because if you have no page limits then any any idea that a client has and that would be just as true in the government even if a client you know if some client agency says well i don't want to run a particular argument at least if you're at the 50 page limit or the 30 page limit, you can say, well, that's great, but what argument do you want to take out in order to make room for your argument? And there's some, there's a mechanism for pushing back. Whereas in a world where there are no limits, it's, it's sort of a free for all. And it's, you know, you lose the ability to say, you know, you know, the other side will always say, well, can you guarantee me that this is not going to be a point that's going to make a difference? And even though you strongly believe it cannot possibly make a difference. There's no way you can say categorically that it won't. So I, I, I do think that that change was was <laughs> blissful from from a lot of different perspectives. But also it did it. I mean, the question of whether Amiki followed the specialization of the Supreme Court bar, or the Supreme Court bar followed the specialization of or the, the addition of Amiki, probably it's both of them operated at the same time in part because with with the fewer number of pages now available to the party there was more opportunity for friends of the court to come in and provide additional information in a meaningful way and so there was there was more of a demand for having amicus support and participation uh, and then over time they did develop a specialized supreme court bar and obviously there was a demand to be in a position to be able to 
file more briefs. And so that, that happily ends up in a situation, or at least as a practitioner, I suppose it happily ends up with a situation where you do end up with a significantly larger number of briefs. So the overall number of pages may not have changed between what it was prior to 1980 and, and what it is these days in terms of the entire submission to the court. Um, but at least it's it's chopped up in a way that makes it a little easier to just for each justice, I think, to decide, well, is this an amicus brief I really think I need to read? Or maybe this is just something a law clerk can take a look at and tell me if I this is something I need to read. I want to go back to you talking about the 600-page antitrust brief. I'm curious, and you, I think I understand how that was as a clerk, but I'm curious for the bench as well. I would think if you have a 600-page brief to read and opposing counsel has a much shorter one, I'm probably going to read opposing counsel more closely and, and maybe even enjoy it more than the long one. I mean, strategically, do you think that was an issue. If somebody filed a really, really long brief before there was a limit, maybe it wasn't very well written or you know, maybe it wasn't thought out. Is it, you feel like a shorter brief perhaps gave a party an advantage before there were limits in place? Well, as I said, I think the United States had an inherent advantage because it, it had a self-imposed limit that um, it, it, it didn't always stick to, but it it did adhere to pretty closely. I don't think private litigants, frankly, were that restrained. I mean, I, I think it would have made sense in response to a 500-page brief to file a 50-page brief because it probably would have been much more powerful. But my recollection is that it was more tit for tat if if one party was going to address 20 sub issues and the on the on the way to making an argument for reversal, the other party felt a need to respond with a similar a blast of uh, of energy and so you end up with the same you know essentially the same page length it wasn't exactly the same maybe but i i don't recall any case at least when i was clerking where you know, one side had these incredibly long briefs and the other side had virtually nothing other than in cases involving the united states government because it did retrain retain that rule michael you had a, a very long career with the sg's office can you tell us how did you learn to write perhaps shorter and concisely? And then how did you teach other lawyers who joined the office coming up to do that? Or is it something that you already knew? I, I can see for some people it would be something they have to learn. So uh, different lawyers in the office had different philosophies, I think, about brevity. Uh, I uh, worked very closely with Bill Bryson, who's now a judge on the federal circuit. He had uh, the criminal docket as deputy. I succeeded him as criminal deputy, and I sought to emulate his style. He described his style as intentional blandness, <laughs> which I think is a little bit of an exaggeration in... Uh, downplaying the uh, the art form of writing a brief, but it did mean that he had an aversion to uh, over the top language, uh, adverbs um, in particular, adjectives that did very little uh, work, and was better at crossing things out than adding them in. And I uh, sought to emulate that style. Other deputies 
were either somewhat less concerned with concision or believed that the court gave us 50 pages for a reason, we should be using every single page. And those deputies favored more footnotes, more nuances and uh, description. And those briefs I found personally uh, harder to read they oftentimes did respond to the fact that the government has a lot of competing interests and needs to explain uh, both limits and implications in ways that, that perhaps private parties would be better off refraining from. But I always thought that the best briefs were the shortest briefs, that the goal is to express what you want to say as clearly and concisely as possible so that you could actually see the visible lines of the argument. And it was corroborated to some extent by judges who would come back and uh, talk to members of the office. We had brown bag, bag, brown bag lunches. We would invite judges in, uh, to attend. No sitting justice came while I was there. Justice Stevens came after he retired. But Judge Roberts on the DC circuit before he became chief justice came and he said he wished that he had appreciated as a advocate the lack of uh, benefit to having extra pages that just tax the, the mind of the judge. And if you're not gonna win on your first, second or third best argument, you're probably not gonna win on the fourth, fifth and sixth one. I think Carter and I would probably agree, it is really hard to cut those arguments out, especially if you have a client who is enamored of one of them. Uh, because you can't say definitively, well, this argument is a loser if the other ones aren't going to succeed. But every time that you do uh, cross things out and drop arguments that are weaker, I think you do improve the quality of the brief. And the way that you teach that is by editing. And sometimes you have some, some unhappy people. I can remember the first reply brief that I did in the Supreme Court for Bill Bryson came back with the first sentence intact and the next four pages crossed out. That was a lesson. <laughs> I'm curious, do either of you think that Justice Roberts' time in government law influenced his writing style? I mean, personally, I have always thought that his opinions are incredibly well written. And to the point and easy to understand, I find that I don't even have to take notes to understand the main point of his opinions, which is unlike some of the other justices. Do you think that his time in government law maybe influenced how he writes? No, I think he is a natural talent who transcended the forms that he saw as a government lawyer. His briefs were more recognizable as having a a light touch style and a deft hand at using interesting words uh, without uh, sort of table pounding that you sometimes see in, uh, in briefs that you're writing for private clients who are outraged. Uh, and he had that gift from the first time he picked up a pen to write memos for uh, the attorney general or in the White House, you can see it in those documents that were released. And he had it as a private lawyer. And I think he was renowned. And there are very, very few successors who even attempt to do what he does, which is include creative touches 
that are um, literary, not, not artificial, but uh, using language in really interesting ways and telling stories. Very few people can pull that off and are best advised not to try. Carter, do you have thoughts to add to that? Oh, I, I agree with that completely. I, I thought what was striking was, I mean, I, I think I competed against John Roberts for about 10 years in private practice and, and no one was happier than I was when he went on the bench because it was a, that was a frustrating situation to confront. So, um, I, and I just thought, I, I, I've never seen anything in his writing that shows that anything changed. He, he's one of those extraordinary human beings who knew how to write at the very beginning of their professional lives and, and, and seemed to have lost little or nothing in the interim. If I can tell a brief story about my first Supreme Court argument, uh, which was also John Roberts' first Supreme Court argument, I got to the office and was assigned a double jeopardy case that on the law should have been easy, but on the facts was really horrible because it involved a civil penalty that was astronomically greater than the amount of damages that the government had suffered. And the government lost this case in a district court, took it straight up to the Supreme Court, did not stop at a court of appeals. It was the last year of direct appeals to the court. And the defendant didn't appear at all. So the court appointed a, an amicus to defend the judgment. And the amicus that they appointed was John Roberts, who at that point was a recent Supreme Court clerk. And like me, cutting his teeth on Supreme Court advocacy for the first time. And he wrote a brilliant and beautiful brief that conscripted ideas that had been floating around in the law and had never been accepted. And he won the case nine to zero. Uh, so I lost my first case to him nine to zero. And the rule of law that he persuaded the court to adopt was so out of harmony with the rest of the law and so detrimental to the administration of justice that Six years later, uh, I argued another case in which the court all but overruled the first one. And it was uh, John Roberts's talent and gift for advocacy that persuaded the court it could adopt this rule of law, which totally collapsed in practice. When you argued your first Supreme Court case, you were an assistant solicitor general? I was an assistant to the solicitor general, yes. I see. And I know, Carter, you said you're a little bit older than Michael. I wanted to ask you, when you first got your hired with those agencies, who were they looking for? Um, I'm sure it was still very difficult to get a, a job offer, but what was it like then and how has it changed? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, what it was like. The office has changed in its composition pretty dramatically in some respects. So when I when I joined the Solicitor General's office. I actually showed up on the same day that that, that my eventual boss, Rex Lee, joined the joined the office. And on that day, the number of former Supreme Court clerks in the Solicitor General's office went from one to three, because Rex and I had both clerked, and and that was all. There were the rest of the assistants um, really had very very varied backgrounds. Um, a lot of them coming out of different areas of the Justice Department. And indeed, the day I interviewed for a job and and the next person who who joined the office after me was uh, Sam Alito. And uh, 
he had been an, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney uh, in, the, in the district in New Jersey. And uh, so, whereas it seems now, and I don't know if it's a, it's a necessary condition, but it, it does seem to be a certain, certainly a, a big plus to have clerked at the court in order to join the SG's office. It's, it, it, was, it was significantly less important in those days. I, I don't know whether it was quite as competitive then uh, as it is now, uh, and that may have something to do with the, with the fact that there is a, a, a private Supreme Court bar. I think uh, a lot of people wondered what they would do after their tenure in the SG's office, where you would go from there. Would, could you go into private practice? What kind of a practice would it be like? So a lot of, I think there were probably more who went into teaching. And, uh, and so that, that was one career path, but I think that's changed uh, over time. But Michael probably knows that better than I do. And just to, Carter, you would have been at the SG's office starting in 79, is that correct? No, 81. 81, okay. And Michael, when did you join? I joined in August 1988. Okay. And it already had shifted, I think, fairly dramatically towards uh, preference for Supreme Court clerks, but it wasn't an exclusive uh, club of Supreme Court clerks. There were several of us who had not clerked on the Supreme Court and were brought in for different reasons. People often came in from components of the Justice Department where they had expertise in different subject matters and environmental or coming from the Office of Legal Counsel where you were exposed to a lot of constitutional law. And there still are spots that are taken by those people, but I think Carter is clearly correct that the overwhelming majority of people now follow a trajectory of one or two appellate clerkships, a Supreme Court clerkship, a few years at a Supreme Court practice in a major firm, and then it's off to the SG's office. And part of this change is probably a result of the increased prominence of uh, Supreme Court litigation and the desire for people to have a chance to argue in the SG's office is the best place for a young lawyer to get the chance to stand up in the Supreme Court. And it's also a place where you are serving the public interest at the highest level, uh, engaging on behalf of the United States government with the Supreme Court and having a chance to try to persuade the justices to do something. And that, that is very attractive. So it's made it incredibly competitive and there is a value to having clerked at the court and seeing how the justices interact and how they question at arguments and what is important to them. And those are valued by the SG's office too. One of you mentioned, sometimes people would wonder, well, where, what am I going to do after working in the SG's office? Was there less competition to hire people from the SG's office back when you started than there is now? Because I feel like, I mean, that really sets young lawyers up for some very plumb jobs, particularly in private practice. Well, at least when I left the Solicitor General's office, that there, there, there didn't exist anything that any any in private practice where a firm would hold itself out as regarding it as having a standalone appellate shop of any sort, much less a Supreme Court shop. Uh, I mean, Barrett, Barrett Prettyman 
was at Hogan at that time, and he he had clerked for three of the justices at one point, and he argued maybe a couple times every so often at the court. And Erwin uh, Griswold, who had been the Solicitor General, uh, I think it was count was senior counsel at Jones Day, and he occasionally would come back to the court, but nobody was really pushing that kind of a practice. So I, I think when you left the SG's office, you, you, you wouldn't sell it, you wouldn't market yourself as somebody who was gonna be a, an appellate or a Supreme Court lawyer, you just sort of held yourself out as a litigator uh, who had had at least some experience standing on, on, on his feet in court. Um, and that was candidly how I got hired uh, by Sidley at the time. Fortunately for me, my boss, Rex Lee came to Sidley after that, and and really his it was both his vision and and his prominence that allowed the firm to create an independent Supreme Court and appellate practice, which candidly started a, a snowball effect. Michael, what do you think? Carter is a hundred percent correct. He was really present at the creation of uh, the modern Supreme Court bar. Uh, Rex Lee bringing in Carter. Uh, was a, a big move and it made a splash and they were able to position themselves almost uniquely as having a level of Supreme Court expertise that other firms were not uh, trying to compete with. And then shortly before I joined the office, uh, two deputies from the SG's office and a very senior assistant left and went to Mayor Brown. And that was the next big splash of a Supreme Court practice. They already had a former deputy there and together they were a powerhouse. And for a while, those two dominated. And over time, other firms began to realize that it was attractive to clients and it could be financially successful as well. So they started following. And now I have lost count of how many firms would say that they have a uh, specialized Supreme Court bar, but it has become a very competitive area of the practice. I, th I think when Carter started off uh, with Rex and in marketing this specialty, lots of lawyers figured, I can do this. You know, I don't need somebody else to argue my Supreme Court case. I'm a very good lawyer on my own. And they helped create the uh, the belief, which I subscribe to, others may think it's a myth, that there is a value in having a close eye on the Supreme Court and experience in interacting with them. And over time, that took hold. Now it is super competitive. And there's a lot of firms out there that are doing it. And there's not enough cases to go around. So the, the bar has changed quite considerably. All right, gentlemen, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you, Michael. Take care. And listeners, thank you for joining us today, too. If you have ideas for a future show on how much your work has changed over the years, please let me know. I'm on Twitter at SSW, as in Stephanie Francis Ward 70, Roman numeral 2, or you can email me at stephanie.ward, American Bar. Org. Also, if you like what you heard today, please read us an Apple podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.